And I hope, I hope we can marvel this morning at the Word of God. What a crazy, weird story. This is such a Santa Fe story. It is a weird story for weirdos. So I'm glad you're here. Jesus shows up and moves toward an impossible situation in a way that is nothing short of radical or perhaps even a little bit ridiculous. And we are faced, like the people and the pigs, with a choice. Everyone is a beggar. What kind of beggar will you be? Uh, my voice is a little gruff, by the way. I don't think I have COVID. I don't. I've been tested like 48 times. That's millennial hyperbole for a lot of times. Just had a cold this last week. I'm fine. I'm getting over it. And it's just a reminder, as is this story, that God delights to make his power perfect in weakness. He delights to show up into your life and your power and your priorities and rearrange them. So here's Mark. Mark loves to do this in this 16-chapter gospel, this action-packed story filled with a seemingly unendless parade of immediately this and immediately that, Mark shows us Jesus in an impossible situation. It's a continuation of, of last week where Jesus does something impossible. He shows his cosmic and complete power over nature as he calms the storm. I love the disciples. They're like you and me. They're like, Jesus, where are you? Things are tough. You don't care about me. You don't care about my life and my struggles. We're about to die. And Jesus shows them as we heard that he is actually the greater power. The storm is a significant power. Jesus is the greater power. Jesus is the greater power of the storm over nature. He is the greater power of the powers out there. And as we see this week, as legion is silenced and named and put under the authority of the Son of God and conquered, Jesus is not only the greater power of the storm out there, but also the storms within. We come to this text, and whether you're younger or old, er, whatever you are, you should be asking this question, what in the world does this story have to do with me in Santa Fe in 2022? When there is some crazy, naked, cutting guy running around a graveyard screaming who's oppressed by a legion of demons, what does this have to do with me? And the fact is, if you've ever been under spiritual attack, if you wrestle, if you have things you struggle with, if you have voices that come out of nowhere to torment and condemn, then this is our story too. It's a story about Jesus pursuing somebody who is in an impossible situation. And by the way, if you're here this morning and you're a Christian and you believe in Jesus, barely, weak faith, look at you people, as small as a mustard seed, barely, or Huge faith. You're having your best day right now. You know, there's, there's allergies and all kinds of things going out there, but you are doing great. Whether you're on this or that side of the spectrum, this is the story of a Jesus who pursues the lost, who delights to enter into impossible situations and bring healing and hope and the power of recreation, the power of God who speaks into existence something, life, where there was nothing but death. Jesus pursues the lost, the attacked, the oppressed, us. And when he pursues, he doesn't just come with 
you know, five ways to live a better life. You know, a short list of self-help advice and a podcast. Please subscribe. He comes with the power not to domesticate the things inside that seek to kill and destroy, but to deliver us from them. To break the chains of the one who breaks the chains. Jesus shows us our great need and he sets us free and Mark gives us this story of the beauty of the power of the gospel and says, and now we have to choose. Our way, our kingdom, or the way and his. We're gonna see this in our text in a variety of ways. The first is that Jesus moves toward these people and this man. Jesus moves toward He calms the sea and he crosses the lake. And now we know why. It's for you. It's for you and your stuff and your life right now that's hidden. That you haven't told your pastor yet. And you're not going to. One scholar puts it this way. He moves deliberately into dangerous pagan territory. So as we think about and learn about the demon-possessed man... Forget not this, love pursues the lost. You have been loved and pursued by God. You were lost and now found. This is how we face the world. This is how we face Santa Fe. Not with your preferences. Not with your particular political persuasion, which I'm sure if you asked me and learned mine, you would be wrong and I would be right. No, that's division. The only thing that can get this motley weird crew of people together in this room is the cross of Jesus Christ because love has pursued the lost and that's how we face our city now. That's how we face our neighbors, including the demon-possessed ones that are maximally annoying and impossible in your mind. (laughs) Jesus goes to the Decapolis, the Decapolis, 10 cities that had been Hellenized, that is, influenced by Greek culture. So they were, from the Jewish perspective, basically anathema, heresy, out there, not of us or with us anymore, hence the pigs. Because every good Jew reading this gospel would have known that the last thing you would do is herd and tend pigs, much less sell them, much less eat them, because you had probably memorized Leviticus chapter 11. But part of what Jesus wants to show everybody, including his disciples, who have just seen his power over the storm, is that even though these are pig tenders, their need is the same, whether it's in the Decapolis or Jerusalem. So he comes to the Gerasenes, the not chosen people, the Gentiles, you, me, the impossible situations. At best, they are a nuisance in the region. At best, they're a reminder to the Jews that what was once Solomon's territory is no longer. (laughs) And the land promises were never fully fulfilled, but now they're even less fulfilled because we have these Hellenized pig farmers up in the Decapolis. At worst, they are perceived as invaders. They are certainly known as compromisers. It's interesting, a legion was a a group of Roman soldiers, 6,000 strong, And the Jews who anticipated the coming of the Messiah had a belief 
that the Romans themselves were essentially the pigs of the world who God would someday drive into the heart of the sea. Undoubtedly, this is how many of those who had gotten on their boats to follow Jesus across the lake would have considered the garrisons. But the message that Jesus sends to all the religious people, all the happy little religious people, is you better not think you know. (laughs) You better not think you know what I'm going to do and who I am and who I'm going to love because I am the embodiment of the book of Hosea right here, right now. And I don't set my love on the lovely. I don't set my love on the good Jew. I set my love on the unlovely. I pursue the lost. So in this story, we find out that there is a gospel too, good news, even for pig owners. Jesus moves toward them and us, and he doesn't move toward uh, all that's good about them, but he moves toward perhaps one of the biggest problems, at least in this city in town, because when he lands, he is immediately greeted by a guy from the tombs who comes out to meet him with an unclean spirit. And folks, if we could paint a picture of this guy, we're talking about someone who isn't just disturbed who isn't just, you know, pacing back and forth, mumbling under their breath, who, but who is in the community dangerous. This is a scary person. They have lost control. No one can bind them. They've tried everything. And if you've ever been near a strong man or woman who has lost control, then you know the level of fear that this would well up within the souls of those in the community. So they had put him outside the camp. He was unclean, and he is to live in an unclean place, the tombs. Worse than that, he's isolated. His life as a human being, as an image bearer of God, has disintegrated to the point of ash. He is cut off from his family and his friends. He is the walking dead that lives among death as dead. This is the epitome of hopelessness. This is an impossible situation. And so, just as you or I would probably do, the people in his town kind of gave up on him. And I want us to consider what we've given up on, who we've given up on. Maybe there's something in your own life that you go, yeah, I mean, God loves me, but he can't handle that. I've tried. I've prayed. I've done all the religious things. Ain't happening. Or maybe there's someone you know that you go, yeah, that's just not possible. They're nice, they're a friend, but they are too overcome and oppressed with their own trappings, their own worldview, their own sense of their own grandeur and pride. There's no way. What we also learn about this man is that he is indeed possessed by demons. Uh, The demonic influence is strong in his life. They have essentially taken control of him. Satan comes to steal and kill and destroy. And in any way, in any way that you or I are controlled by lies that do not come from God, we can at least relate to this guy. They cry out. There's no rest. He's restless. There's no peace. Cuts himself, self-harm. This is the opposite of Genesis 1 through 3. God came to give life and life to the full for man to create and be himself a creator to take the world and bless. And here is this man destroying himself. This is the nature of what is demonic. 
to lie and to destroy what is in the image of God. So he is, as it were, the anti-Genesis, the anti-goodness and wholeness of God in creation. He lives in a false garden. This is a garden of death. And rather than being fruitful and multiplying, he is cutting chunks of himself out to his own destruction. And perhaps most importantly, he can't help himself. If you've ever come to the end of yourself with something where you just, you can't help yourself, you've tried everything, he can't help himself. He can't get out. One scholar, N.T. Wright, puts it this way. No one could tame him. He's like a wild animal given over to his vices and desires. And yet when Jesus shows up, he doesn't show up to merely domesticate that which attacks him, but to de-demonize the man. Reminding us that when we are confronted with the power of Jesus, we are also led to see that we have deeper problems than what's on the outside. That's too easy to just gussy up once a week on a Sunday morning. Jesus does not move toward this man to enter into a dialogue with him about his feelings or his issues. He moves toward him in power to deliver him. Jesus moves toward our deepest problem, the one that we often find easiest to hide. And that is that we are not only controlled, but want to be in control. That's, that's just what sin means. It doesn't mean you did a naughty no-no one time. You did a naughty no-no. Tisk tisk. It means that most deeply in our heart, we are not only controlled, but seeking to control. Most deeply in our heart, apart from God's help, we kind of want to be our own God. And this is a man being controlled and seeking to control who's been brought to the logical end of what that looks like. Dehumanization and decreation itself. It's into this problem that Jesus moves toward with power and authority. A greater power. A cosmic power. And the man knows it immediately. So we get this weird interaction, right? He sees Jesus, we're told, from afar. And what does he do? Flex out his chest and, you know, put on his MFA gloves and let's fight. No, he weirdly runs toward Jesus, he falls down, he cries out, and scholars have wondered, what exactly is going on here? Is this the involuntary submission of the demons? Is this somehow the man, a semblance of the man, actually wanting help? Possibly the best explanation, though, is found in the words of Legion itself. What have you to do with me, O Son of the Most High God? fear, crying, loud voice. The demons themselves address Jesus for who he is. They know, as James chapter 2 tells us, they know the word, they know God is real, they know their power is limited, they know their end is nigh. The demons know, James says, and shudder. And so strangely, this is their manipulative way of trying to gain control. Something that you sophisticated people never do. And I do all the time. When I'm feeling attacked, when there's oppression in my life, when there are challenges and obstacles insurmountable, I never try to take control and bargain with God, negotiate with God, make a deal with Jesus, rub the lamp, and Robin Williams pops out and sings a song. That's why the hinge of this text 
is not the question of legion. What have you to do with us, O Son of the Most High God? The hinge of this text is Jesus' question. Because his very asking of the question is a demand for the answer, a display of his power and authority, moving toward that which would destroy this man. What is your name, he asks. In the Old Testament, a person's name was sacred. It was a piece of their identity and their essence. It was a resemblance of their character. What is your name? I'm here, and I'm not afraid. I'm not scared by you, weird, naked tomb guy, cutting yourself. You're not going to put on a big display of your own little mini power and drive me away. The Son of God is here. The one who has come to move toward death and brokenness and bring resurrection life to it. What is your name? And this is a question for us too. Now, if you're here this morning and you're, you're not a, a Christian, the, the question really is, who gets to give you your name? But if you are a, a Christian, the, the question this morning isn't meant to, you know, beat you up. Oh, I'm a worm. You know, get, get out your whip and start doing penance. Because if you are in Christ, hidden with Christ in God, you are a son. You are a daughter. This is not meant to be guilt or shame. The opposite. It is the Spirit of God that by the kindness of God leads us to repent, turn away from the death and the tombs, and turn to the cross of Christ. So Jesus tenderly, listen, mercifully, kindly, is speaking to us in this text. Who are you really? Where are you trying to take control? Where have you given it away to that which would harm you? What are your demons? Folks, this is our story. Maybe you're not, you know, you don't look as bad as this guy, but what has control? What voices do we allow to speak to us, to tell us who we are? What chains do we wear? I was talking to my wife about this recently, always trying to take a break from social media. You guys are more... You're stronger than I am, so you can probably be on Facebook without sinning immediately, but I can't. And I not only sin immediately, but then I'm jealous of five people living their best life on that day. And, you know, it's, you always leave feeling a little more depressed than you were before you got on, but I go back like a dog to his vomit. And, you know, we were just talking about how, like so many of these, especially for women, this is coming from my wife, these Instagram and TikTok filters and Snapchat filters are like the new fig leaves. The new fig leaves that men and women, you know, put, put over themselves. They don't want to be naked and ashamed to cover themselves, to not be exposed, to live behind false selves and a fake reality. And the world's just saying, you're not enough. You don't look good enough. You're not anything enough. So put on these fake fig leaves, filter your life, and then show that to the world. And then you'll be enough. So far be it from us to think, oh, it's been 2,000 years. We don't have anything like that going on anymore. They answer Jesus, we are legion. And I want you to see something about the nature of spiritual attack here. It'd be so much easier, right, if a thought just pops into your mind and would say, hi, you know, I'm a, I'm a demon, my name is Bob, good to meet you, and I will, hear, I will be here to lie to you right now. And then you would just be like, ooh, yes, 1 Corinthians, take every thought captive, submit it to Christ. Ah, you've already been crushed, serpent, under the foot of Christ. no. Just like legion, there's no name, it's ambiguous, it's impersonal, it's abstract, it's just subtle enough 
that in the exhaustion of our own attempts to manipulate, in the exhaustion of that, we're prone to believing a lie. So what does Jesus do? Well, he does the same thing he did on the lake. He calms the storm. He calms the storm within the man. He shows the greater power. He tells this group, name yourself. You need to own who you really are. No abstractions, nothing impersonal. Own who you really are. This is, as one scholar put it, evil unmasked. No hiding. The power of Jesus that moves toward the impossible situation unmasks the reality of these liars so that in his power he may speak truth and love. Now, Tim Keller puts it this way, and I really love this because Jesus moves toward the most broken people and he never leaves them there. It's not cruel and it's not compromise. The power and authority of Jesus to the demoniac is truth in love. Look, love without truth, this is Tim Keller now, is sentimentality. That is not what this guy needs. The demon-possessed guy does not need a Hallmark card from Jesus. I just hope you feel better, you know? Here's a 13-minute feel-good sermon. Now have a great day. Love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms, which is needed, but it keeps us in denial about our flaws. This man has a deep disease, a deep cancer. He needs the truth about it. Not just a, you know, you're nice and everybody likes you. At the same time, truth without love is harshness. Notice that Jesus doesn't come to this impossible situation of a man and say, I didn't sign up for this. I came for the garrisons. Leave me alone. He doesn't walk the long way around like we so often do. He also doesn't say, tie the guy up. What the heck's going on here? Tie this guy up and let's give him a good beating and then I can tell him the gospel when he shuts up and listens. Truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we cannot really hear it. And so the Jesus who moves toward, who moves toward the problem, moves toward with power and authority that for him and for you and me speaks the truth in love. Now what happens? The demons beg Jesus, send us into the pigs. And he does. Uh, he does. This is weird. You know, I don't think Jesus hates bacon. Um, the Lord declared that all food is clean through Peter. Uh, he, he's not just trying to harm animals. And so there have to be at least a few meanings here for us to understand Jesus who gives permission to these demons to carry out what they wanted to carry out in the first place through the cutting and the screaming and the crying, and that is self-destruction. The first thing I think we need to see here is there's nothing that has you that he can't handle. There's nothing that has you that he can't handle. He already knows. He already cares. He already speaks your name to the Father. You know, Satan comes up with, oh, yep, you know, look what we found out now about these people. Look what we found out now about what's going on in their life. Satan holds that up. Jesus goes, no, actually, that's covered in the blood too. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father, interceding on your behalf. His work is finished. He is seated down. He knows your name. He prays for you in these things. Nothing has you that he can't handle. 
At the same time, I think it's important for us to see that Jesus is cleansing this region of what is unclean. He's giving these people in this pagan territory an opportunity to repent and believe and trust God. But perhaps most important in the sending of the demons into the pigs is that Jesus is showing us that one crazy, worthless man is worth more than the entire economic backbone of the village. This one crazy, written off, outside the camp, helpless, hopeless, impossible, worthless man is worth more. This one man in the image of God is worth more than their entire pig herding business. Jesus came, we're told in Luke chapter 4, to set the captives free. And so often when Jesus comes into our lives, he rearranges our powers and our priorities with, with his own. You see, perhaps what is most scandalous about this story is that no rabbi would have ever gone near this man. You have to understand how ridiculous Jesus is. Ridiculous to religious people. Beyond offensive. If you are claiming to be a rabbi, the Mashiach of God, the Messiah of God in the first century, you do not move toward the unclean. And this guy is as unclean as it gets. He's cutting himself. He's crazy. He's in a graveyard, which is unclean. He is impure. He's outside the camp. He can't come back to worship God. He can't be reconciled. He can't re-enter the temple. He needs to get right first. And Jesus says, yeah, that's how every worldly system of power works. And I'm different. Because in those days, if someone unclean touched you, what happened to you? You got unclean. And then you had to go through all the rites and the rituals to get back so that you could re-enter the, the, the temple and make your sacrifices. Jesus is saying, no, a new kingdom is here. A new king is here. This king touches lepers, poor, prostitutes, men and women that are controlled by demonic forces. Because when Jesus moves toward the brokenness and uncleanness of the world, it's not that he is infected with that uncleanness, it's the exact opposite. He makes the man clean. This is our great hope. This is Mark's gospel. He's leading us to the, to the Jesus who will hang on a cross and die for our sins in our place so that we might see the Jesus who, who raises and has the power and authority over death and demons and the world and our flesh and can truly make all things new. Mark is reminding us here as a foretaste when we get to chapter 14 and 15 that Jesus himself will be outside the city. Jesus will be among the tombs. He will be mocked and reviled and spit on as a crazy man. He will be cut mercilessly by those who oppress and persecute him. He will, as it were, take the place of the demon-possessed man and you and me and the sins of the whole world on the cross that he might once and for all put death itself to death. And that he might once and for all raise that which is dead up to new life. No one is too far gone. No one is too far gone. 
That's the best news in the world. So this brings us to our choice. Uh, This story is a, a tale of two beggars. Everyone begs, everyone has desires. Everyone puts their faith in something, some object of their faith that they believe and trust that exercises control over them, even if they think that's themselves. And you're the master and commander of your own ship. Yeah, right. This is a story of two beggars, and Mark draws us to the contrast that we, having beheld the love and the mercy and the power and the goodness of Messiah, might choose, might choose and believe for us and might choose and believe for those around us. The man is sitting there, as one scholar puts it, clothed in his right mind and stone-cold sober. And not everybody's happy about it because the people come from the village and the town and they've just lost 2,000 pigs. They've just lost a, a, a massive amount of ability to feed their families and build their cities. This is an economic catastrophe. And who is this Jesus anyway? We've never even really heard of this guy. He was on the other side of the lake. Why is he coming over to the Decapolis? And yeah, I mean, I know this demon guy just got saved. You know, he went to summer camp, walked the aisle, sang the song and prayed the prayer. But what happens in a couple weeks when he's off his spiritual high? Is he going to go back to being the crazy guy that terrorizes everybody? And so they beg Jesus to leave. The healed man begs Jesus that he can go with him. Here's what's interesting. The power of Jesus disrupts our lives with new priorities. It is easy to talk about how this place is a hospital and not a country club where the strong lift up the weak and the weak bless the strong with the gospel. We weep with those who weep. We mourn with those who mourn. We rejoice with those who rejoice. We're a hospital and not a country club. It's easy to say, it's really hard to live out because Jesus is coming into our lives across the lake with the greater power and there will be disruption of our kings and kingdoms, control and comfort. So they beg and believe. The question Mark simply asks you and me is what will your beg be? <laughs> will you be the one who confronted with Jesus goes, no, I didn't sign up for this, man. It's too much. You know, I could do church on Sunday sometimes, but I didn't sign up for all this. Nothing this scary, this radical, this powerful. Or will we realize that we're all the demoniac, that every salvation is a miracle of deliverance and the freedom and the breaking of chains that only Christ alone can do, a heart of stone turned to a heart of flesh, and will we beg Jesus to go with him? Now I want you to notice this. The people get what they want. Friends, let this not be us. Oh, I see it in myself. So we need to help each other. We need to help each other and be real and live life together deeply and vulnerably in the gospel. Because I see this in myself. The people get what they want. He leaves. Okay. You don't want me? You'd rather have money and self-protection and power? Don't you see the irony? They were just as controlled by their demons. Respectable idols as was the man. But they're not free. And so Jesus leaves. And they missed it. They missed the Messiah. The man, though, the man doesn't get what he asked for. (laughs) You'd think he would. 
He's just had the best day of his whole life. He doesn't get what he asked for. What does Jesus say? He says, no. Even though these people don't want me, I will still be faithful to leave them a witness. Because even though they don't know what they need, I know what they need. And even in their rejection of me, I will leave them the very thing they need most. And here is what is crazy. This guy that you would never even get 20 feet near, and neither would I, becomes the first Gentile missionary in the Bible. Before Paul, before the centurion, there's this maniac who becomes the first Gentile missionary in the 10 cities of the Decapolis, and Jesus says, go and tell your story. Now, this is our calling too. However he has rescued you, however he has loved you, however he has freed you or is freeing you, is helping you, bringing you to the end of yourself, your control and the voices, reminding you that his power is made perfect in weakness, his grace is sufficient. However he's doing it, go and tell that to the people that are around you. They don't need religion and rules and regulations and self-help and advice. They need, to, they need to meet someone who's met Jesus and been set free. Go and tell how much God has done. What mercy the Lord has shown you. Friends, Jesus moves toward the lost and the broken right to the heart of their problems with the fullness of his power and authority. He does this because nothing is impossible with God. He goes all the way across the lake, across your own story to find, to help, and to save even one lost sheep to bring into his kingdom. That is our story, and that is the story that we have to tell. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your good word to us in Mark's gospel. And I pray now as we come to the feast, as we come to this table, Jesus, that you've prepared, as we've heard the word, we want to eat the word. As Isaiah, one of those guys said, eat this scroll. All right, we're here to eat the scroll, Jesus. We are here to taste and see these promises that have been unfolded to us in this text. That you are not afraid. That you cross the lake for the unworthy. That you move right toward the problems of the impossible situation. That you demonstrate your power and your authority to set us free. So Father, I pray we would come now to this table by faith. We would come trusting you that even if our faith is small and weak, if we believe the good news we've heard, Lord, that you would meet us with what is not weak, the full power and the full strength of your promises. May we never forget, it is not the size of our faith subjectively that saves us, but even the smallest faith in you, the object of our faith, is sufficient to provide for us every benefit of your love and mercy and grace, the full inheritance of being called your sons and your daughters, of being set free. Thank you that your love pursues the lost. Amen.